Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, what do you say, friends? Thanks so much for joining us here. A a very little extra special from the uh, Bill Press Show on the environment and what some of the challenges are and uh, what we are doing about it. Nobody uh, better to talk to about that than Colin O'Mara, our good friend, who is the CEO of the National Wildlife Federation. Hi, Colin. Great to see you. Bill, thanks for having me back. We are approaching um, Earth Day. Uh, on April 22nd. This is, um, what, 30-some years now? Almost 40. Almost 40, right. So 38 years, I guess, 39 years. Um, I remember the very first one I was working for, um, a man was by the name of Peter Bear, was running for the state senate in California, California, and he spoke the very first, one of the very first Earth Day gatherings. Uh, I was there with him. What is, uh, what's the message for Earth Day today? How are we doing? I think it's a it's a tale of two Americas, right? I mean, you have mayors and governors that are doing amazing things, and we've frankly never seen a more destructive EPA than we're seeing right now. Um, and obviously, a, a Department of Interior that's been much more focused on energy dominance than on than on conservation. And so, um, I think the scorecard is very uneven. But you know, right now, I mean, we have the worst environmental official in kind of U.S. history uh, leading the EPA. Um, you know, and he hasn't resigned as of today, at least. Um, and, and he's in rare company. I mean, it's with Ann Gorsuch and James Watt and, mm-hmm. you know, a few of uh, Gorsuch's deputies that ended up being indicted. So, you know, I think right now, I mean, look, I mean, air is cleaner than 40 years ago. I mean, the, the waterways are cleaner. Um, I was facing the climate crisis. So I think on many fronts we've made progress. But, I mean, a lot of the things that Americans take for granted are under assault right now by an EPA that's trying to dismantle 40 years of progress. Uh, and by an Interior Department, too, I guess. No, absolutely. And, and I think— and, I think the chan- and both of them working for a president. <laughs> right. right yeah. And, and I think the, the sad thing is that we've seen bipartisanship um, over the last 40 years where Republicans and Democrats both care about conservation. I mean, like, you know, as you and I have talked about before— I mean, the Bill Recklehouses and, you know, the Nixon administration that, you know, built built the EPA, built CEQ, built the Environmental Protection Agency and built the, the Council of Environmental Quality, had folks like Russell Peterson and, you know, these giants of conservation that were leading the way. Um, you know, we're not, we're not hearing enough of those voices right now. And, you know, right now we've, we've just never seen the imbalance that we're, we're seeing. And so we're hoping that Earth Day becomes a, a huge event this year. Um, you know, hopefully, you know, I like to say every day is your Earth Day. But, yeah. you know, for folks that kind of have that one day on the calendar, um, you know, we're, we're planning to see rallies across the country. Um, we're hoping to see um, just a level of activism, especially as folks are more and more disgusted with the unethical behavior coming out of uh, EPA leadership, Scott Pruitt. Um, I remember, uh, in, particularly in California, where conservation, the environment, was a big political issue in, in campaigns. Is it anymore today? I mean, I think it's it's a top issue. So it's a, you know, if you look at the top 10 issues that most people vote on, it's in there. Um, I do worry that it, you know, it's increasingly behind things like jobs, healthcare, immigration. Um, Unders- and, understandably, Absolutely, too. absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think the challenge that I always mm-hmm. see is that 
if you look at you know, whether it's jobs or healthcare in particular, um, a healthy environment actually advances both, right? So if we're investing in clean energy, that creates good middle-class, you know, manufacturing or construction jobs. If you're reducing emissions, that actually reduces healthcare costs because you're actually having people breathe cleaner air and drink cleaner water. Um, and so we haven't done a good enough job making the case that healthy environment is a way to advance many progressive goals and not just simply for the sake of the natural resources, but for us, for, for people. I want to come back to Scott Pruitt because clearly uh, if you were looking for the arch enemy of EPA in the country, um, it's Scott Pruitt. And Donald Trump was looking for that person to head the EPA, found him. He sued the EPA as, uh, as Attorney General of Oklahoma, what, 14, 14 times? times. And now he's ahead of it, and he's, he's sort of like a one-man wrecking crew. How effective has he been, I mean, uh, in undoing all these regulations and, and setting the clock back? Yeah, I mean, we, we've never seen anything like it. I mean, even going back to the Gorsuch years and the challenges that, that she faced during the first term of the Reagan administration, um, the good news for you know, folks that care about clean air and clean water is that the press releases have been much more strident than the actual effectiveness of what he's doing behind the scenes. Um, it turns out that you know he's just not a particularly good, effective ad- administrator. Um, in that, the many of the many of the causes that he's been championing, whether that's repealing the clean water rule and rewriting it, or kind of undoing the clean power plan, or the methane rules, or the or the uh, chemical toxic standards, or pesticide labeling. I mean, the list kind of goes on and on. Um, they're not doing it well, and so we keep winning in the courts um, because you know you can't just simply overturn something that was promulgated legally with good science behind it um, that Congress has mandated in many cases. Um, and so I think I think for your listeners, I think you know they should be you know be, they should be disgusted by what they're trying to do. They should be heartened that they're not doing it well. Um, but we're at a time when we can't really afford to lose progress. I mean, like, you know, when you look at the, the new climate models in particular and the kind of the intensity of the storms we're seeing, now is not a time we can take four years off. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really, I mean, if anything else, he's just slowing our, our progress. But there's going to be a lot of work to do to restore some of the things he's tried to undo and really pick up the pace so we're not losing our, our natural resources and, and the health that we need. Are the scientists, the professionals at EPA, and they're wonderful people, are they able to do their job? It's a great question. I mean, like, I mean, the, I think the EPA professionals are some of the best public servants in the entire oh, country. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Some of the scientists in particular. And um, many have left, um, which is heart- disheartening. And I understand why from, a, from an ethics point of view. But at the same time, I need <laughs> I want them there. I was actually just talking to a friend the other day who was debating going back and forth. And I said, look, look, we, we need you there. She's one of the best climate scientists in the country. Um, and, you know, just to kind of stick it out. Their, their voices are being muzzled um, in a lot of ways. I mean, they're not being allowed to speak out. They're not being allowed to, to comment on different things. Um, basically, they're not allowed to use certain words. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Kind of this Orwellian vocabulary um, that you have to use. And, and I think the most concerning part is that it's, they're not informing decision-making. And if you look at the meetings that the administrator has taken over the past year, um, overwhelmingly industry, overwhelmingly political appointees, very, very few career staff involved in these decisions. And I think when you don't have that level of expertise, and good, I mean, and these are public servants that are serving Republicans and Democrats. I mean, most of them yeah, are right. nonpartisan in the best sense of the word. Um, you know, if you don't have that expertise, you can't make good decisions. But they also don't, if you don't hear the, the other side, you know, then you don't have to take it into account. Now, what are the big things that in terms of rolling back the clock on, on uh, in the environment uh, is the decision announced by Scott Pruitt that they're going to undo the CAFE standards adopted by the Obama administration with the support of the American auto industry. Um, and uh, I thought it was interesting that uh, Scott Pruitt was going to make this announcement at a Chevrolet dealership out in Chantilly, Virginia. Right. And there was so much opposition expressed by other Chevy dealers around the country. 
that they canceled that event and they, he made the announcement at EPA headquarters, right? Uh, but uh, does this is this a sign that American technology can't produce you know fuel efficient cars or what? Yeah, I know. I, I think I mean, we had a deal. Yeah. Right. I mean, like when when President Obama saved the auto industry, right? We're Congress with bipartisan support. Part of that deal was we will help make sure that you have the resources you need to recover and you know kind of grow stronger. And you're going to um, make better cars. And you're going to make better cars, and we're going to reduce pollution in the process. And you know, I mean, the D.C. metro area, Baltimore, has some of the worst air pollution in the country because I mean, right now, um, a bigger percentage of our air pollution is actually coming from the transportation sector than coming from power plants at this part of the, in this point mm-hmm. in the region. And so it's it's a huge deal. And every time like we have set high standards for industry to meet on the environmental side, they've met them. I mean, we've met fuel economy standards. I mean, the leadership of California over the years. Yeah. The leadership of you know things like the Clean Air Act amendments that the president, the first President Bush passed. I mean, we always meet the meet these higher bars usually at half the cost that's projected, and usually a quarter of the time that's projected. And and so I don't think it's an indication of the industry of the of the ability of industry to to advance these technologies, which are going to save billions of dollars at the pump and you know and billions of tons of um, carbon from going in the in the atmosphere. I do think that you know there is this kind of I would say greediness on some of the industry side, saying, oh, well, if we can get rid of something that we, that we don't like that maybe has a slightly smaller margin, we'll do it now because we got a guy in the White House that is willing to um, kind of do anything industry asks. And I think that's the, the, that's the frustrating part for me because at a time we should be investing in electric vehicles and you know, more, fuel economy, more fuel efficient vehicles and really reducing our emissions and moving towards automation and moving towards kind of the next generation of transportation. Um, we're going to, again, kind of trying to set them back. And so the good news is that I mean, you have a pretty formidable force in California between mm-hmm. Jerry Brown and my friend Mary Nichols. Um, you know, I, I, we had some conversations with the White House the other day. They actually want to try to negotiate because they realized what they put out was too extreme. And most of the, most of the, a lot of companies across the country are really outraged by the proposal that Pruitt came out with. Um, and so even, I mean, when the when the White House is much more rational than, than the current EPA, you know, you're, you know, kind of pretty far off the deep end. And so we're going to keep pushing hard, but it is. It's just it's bad for consumers and it's bad for our health. Right. Uh, you mentioned California, of course, um, my home state, um, not home state, but my adopted state, if you will. Um, California has said, <laughs> well, fine, you, you, you could say that, but we're not going to change, right? We've got our cafe standards. We're going to stick to them. Uh, and so what are the auto manufacturers, and what are there, 13, 12 or 13 states that follow California's cafe standards? And if they're not going to change... What's the auto industry going to do? Have two different cars that they two different kinds of cars? Yeah, no, this is dirty exactly, ones and clean ones. Yeah, this is exactly the right question because um, I mean, part of the deal that the president, President Obama, cut working with with the team in California was that you would basically harmonize the national standards to have a, a higher bar. Um, there and California has a has the right through the Clean Air Act to actually be able to have a higher standard. And, and frankly, the, the smartest air regulator in the country is, is Mary Nichols out. Mary, in, in, absolutely, in, in, my good friend too, one and of yours, my, one of my yeah. favorites. And, uh, and her team is absolutely brilliant. And so you're going to have a situation where, it's, yeah, like you said, it's not just California. It's also New York and Massachusetts and Maryland and Delaware and Washington and Oregon and, you know, and Rhode Island. And I keep going up the, up the, uh, up the regis, the regional greenhouse gas states in particular. Um, it's 65% of the American people. And so, I mean, I, what I don't know is if I'm, in, if I'm in Nevada, right, and I have a choice between a car that's going to get me 15 miles more a gallon, maybe it costs like a little bit more, but I'm going to save $7,000 over the course of the, the car's lifetime, I want the cleaner car, right? I want. I mean, I'm willing to pay slightly more on the first day if I'm going to save money every day after that for the next mm-hmm. several years. And so, 
I, I just I think at the end of the day, if California holds strong, which they will, the other states stay with them. Yeah, I think this is one of those cases where we might actually wind up with a higher standard overall. And if nothing else, we'll be able to wait out this administration's nonsense. And meanwhile, the rest of the world, not uh, maybe not all the world, but uh, certainly Western Europe, right, and uh, and the it, major Asian economies that we're dealing with are going in the opposite direction. Right. Oh, yeah, no, towards, no. yeah, we're we're increasingly I mean, getting. Uh, what is, <laughs> I think a couple of countries in East, Western Europe have said no more fossil fuels car fossil fuel cars. Period by a certain date. No, I mean this is the thing. I mean, so it's doable. Well, I mean, we, we've we've left the the the, the League of Na- the kind of the, the the universe of nations, you know, on on all things climate, right? I mean, it's not yeah. you know when when Syria and you know Nicaragua <laughs> and Nicaragua didn't think it was strong enough. Nicaragua got this bad this bad rap on social media in the U.S. for not signing on to the Paris Accords, and they said, look, as a small state, like as a small country that faces big challenges with sea level rise, we don't think it's strong enough. Um, when Syria and Russia and North Korea can figure out a way to make commitments around climate and we're walking away, we've gone around the bend. And, right. and I think, and I think the sad thing is that it's American manufacturers, American innovators, and American the American union workers that are going to be the ones suffering because we're going to be buying goods from other state, other countries, if we don't innovate them here. Now, all the negative publicity on Scott Pruitt, well deserved, yeah. but to a certain extent, he um, takes the spotlight away from Ryan Zinke, who I think. Uh, in many ways is just as bad. I mean, this is a guy who, at the president's direction, of course, uh, said, what is it, 27 or 25 or 27 national monuments and national parks are going to review that, the idea. I don't know what American is out there saying, we have too many national parks, you know. That national monument is too big. we got to cut it in half. But Ryan Zinke did cut Bears Ears and Grand Escalante Staircase in half. Um, and, I mean... What is it? How safe are our national parks and national monuments today from just being turned into more oil drilling, more coal mining, more whatever, uranium right. mining? Yeah, I mean, I, my grandmother used to say, you know, don't watch the lips, watch the hands. Um, and, and this is one of those cases where the rhetoric is a lot worse than what we're actually seeing on the ground because. I mean, what we're seeing over and over again with this administration is that they, they propose something that's so outlandish, right, that, and then everyone screams. Yeah. And then they only do a small surgical strike at the end, and they try to make themselves look moderate, even though their original intention was that, that small yeah. thing. In this case, those small things are actually pretty big things, right? So you know, I think what frustrates me about the monument review is that it, it was a charade um, and that you know, it really was about energy. It was about, it was about uranium. It was about coal. It was about natural gas. And it was about oil. And you know, if, that, if that's the case, then just own it, right? And basically say, like, look, we think that, you know, there's places that for security reasons or whatever that this uranium thing is, then let's have that battle. Let's have the battle of ideas and what makes more sense. I will say that in, in you know, southern or in southern Utah, there are a whole lot more jobs in the tourism industry than there are in the mining industry. Um, yeah. and, and we've seen, you know, like right now they're reviewing a proposal to um, lift the, the moratorium that Secretary Salazar during the Obama years um, placed on uranium mining in the kind of the headwaters of the Grand Canyon. If you look at the the the, it's, it may create about sixty jobs. Um, is the is the number, which is again sixty jobs or sixty jobs. Um, but if you look at the kind of rates of, of radiation poisoning in the Navajo communities and some of the local communities from the old uranium mines that were not done particularly safely, it's horrible. I mean, it's absolutely horrific. It's again this, these kind of massive environmental justice concerns. And so what we're seeing over and over again is that. You know, they propose something ridiculous. The American people overwhelmingly oppose it, and then they end up having to back off. And you're going to see the same thing on the offshore oil, oil and gas drilling because yeah. you know, nobody wants it. I mean, they, you know, basically, I mean, the secretary came out the other day and simply said, "Oh, it turns out the market doesn't really want these things." Well, we could have told you that six months ago instead of going through all this drama as they're trying to artificially prop up Governor Scott, you know, who should be beaten badly by. 
Bill Nelson. Um, but again, I mean, it's this, it's this kind of overreach over and over again. And you know, the so one they thing, cut two national monuments. Are they going to cut any more? We don't think so. Um, I mean, there's still some talk about there's one in Oregon um, in the Cascades that they've talked about maybe allowing some additional um, timber harvest in. Um, there's another one in Gold Butte in Nevada that they could change um, a little bit of the boundary because of some concerns the local counties have on water rights. But no, I think I think I think they've gotten the message loud and clear. And frankly, in the last few days, the secretary has kind of come out big for offshore wind in a good way. He proposed oh. restoring uh, grizzly bears to the Cascades in the, north, in the Northwest. So I think they're getting the message that folks want more conservation. And I think he's learning the lessons that I think Scott Pruitt has not learned, that there has to be more balance. So you know, we'll, we'll still work with them. We'll still kind of hit them when we need to. But I still see some conservation there in a way that I don't see any at EPA right now. Right. Uh, Colin Lamar is the, exec- uh, the CEO of the National Wildlife Federation. What's your uh, website? It's www.nwf.org. That's National Wildlife Federation, nwf.org. Easy enough. Uh, Speaking of wildlife, a New York Times uh, article I saw recently here uh, that climate skeptics say polar bears are doing just fine. Scientists (laughs) beg to differ. what what's the status of, your, of polar bear? Yeah, I mean these these stories kill me, and, and I still hate how we give this false equivalency between folks that have no scientific background, have no no data yeah. at their disposal, yeah. and we give them like this kind of you know kind of crossfire style equal time. Um, look, I mean the, the, the numbers are not good, right? And and I think there there have and the bigger concern for me is that the habitat loss is massive. When you look at the rates of of melt, you look at you know kind of the the changing dynamics, especially in the in the in the Arctic. Um, you know, the ability to find food is becoming more challenging, not less. And so right now in America, one-third of all wildlife species are at risk of potential extinction in the coming decades. One-third. And so and 20% are at a high risk. And so we put out a report a couple weeks ago talking about, so, I mean, it's not just polar bears. We do a great job in this country saving the things that we hunt and fish. But we've done a pretty bad job with everything else. And the places that are seeing the biggest habitat impacts, whether it's from pollution or development or mining or from climate impacts, um, are, are struggling right now. And and we're actually encouraged because we're seeing some bipartisan support trying to move more resources into proactive, collaborative, kind of upfront voluntary efforts to try to save wildlife so you don't need the regulatory tools. There's something called the Amer- Recovering America's Wildlife Act that a uh, congressman from Nebraska, Jeff Fortenberry, who's mm-hmm. a you know, proud conservative but a great conservationist, and Debbie Dingell, who comes from you know, the great yeah, Dingell sure. tradition of, of conservation from Michigan, um, have come together. They got 40 co-sponsors, most of whom are Republicans, um, trying to address this very problem. But I just, I don't mean, you, you know, you never argue with a drunk or a fool. Like folks that have no data, have no scientific background, it's hard to... You know, have these conversations rationally because the data just shows that we are seeing species loss in a pretty alarming way. You mentioned uh, one third in uh, at risk of extinction, right? And and we do do a good job of preserving the ones we like to hunt and fish, right? So particularly like the, all the duck refuges around yeah. the, the country, yeah. right? Okay, uh, that argument is uh, advanced by some people for allowing the hunting of big game uh, in, in Africa that, uh, we, you know, costs a hundred thousand dollars to shoot an elephant and that money goes into protecting their habitat. Do you buy it? I mean, like, I mean, I think the, in the U S case we've, we've seen, you know, amazing species recovery of things like grizzly bears and things like, um, things like elk and mule deer and pronghorn and bighorn sheep, um, or the wolves or the wolves. Yeah. But we also, when, when the populations get too low, we also say that we're not going to allow any take of those species um, as they're endangered. And, and I think the, the challenge in the African argument is that right now some of those populations are at those kind of, they're at those low levels. And so if you're looking in like the corridor along the Zambezi River um, and you, know, you look at the population levels, um, 
Gordon, the Gordon Moore and the team have done just some amazing work. Kind of looking, they did this elephant census. They kind of looked at the population levels, working with leading scientists from around the world. I mean, the, the levels are too low to allow hunting in some of these areas because you just don't have the population. So I actually think hunting can be a very powerful management tool, which you know makes me a little more moderate than some of my, my colleagues. But when a population is so distressed that it could actually go extinct, that's insane. And I think that's the conversation that is being missed in the bigger bigger debate. I, I want to ask you about. Um one threat to wildlife, um, particularly to marine life, plastic. Yeah. Uh, there's there's effort now to not only get to away with plastic containers, but plastic bags, uh, or plastic straws, even. Uh, how serious is it, and what's being done? Yeah. So I mean, it's heartbreaking, right? When you look at the amount of of plastic that is winding up, not just not just the ocean, but in waterways, um, it's it is strangling wildlife in a lot of places, and it's 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 changing the chemistry of of, um, of of waterways, and it's also a particularly some marine mammals. So things like you know things like a loggerhead, you know, um, a turtle that's looking to you know, eat jellyfish, a plastic bag or some kind of like looks, film looks a looks whole lot like good. it. Yeah. Know? And and so you're seeing, you know, I, I was just doing, I was just at one of our great zoos and aquariums in the south in the southeast where they're doing a lot of necropsies on looking at you know kind of the impacts on different turtles that have lost ashore, and the the plastic contents are huge right now, and. You know, I, I think we all need to re- reduce our usage. I mean, recycling is absolutely important. A lot of these things can't be recycled well. Um, straws are a good example of that. They're yeah. very hard to recycle. It's it's very expensive. So most of them just wind up in the trash stream. Um, you know, so when you're getting that glass of water at the restaurant, just maybe leave the straw behind. You know, there's a lot of things we don't. A lot of times we don't need it. You know, if, you know, if the cup doesn't need to be covered, we probably also don't need a straw. Yeah. And you know, I just think we well, don't realize our individual actions add up. But, I mean, you know, a few years ago, that study was done showing the um, the plastic film that's kind of the landmass the size of Texas in the yeah. ocean. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're, we, we've kind of met the enemy, and it's, it's us. Right. We don't need it. And um, not just recycling, best to just do away with it as far as I'm concerned anyhow. But, well, um, there are some challenges, but it's good to hear that uh, there are also some good news uh, looking ahead for uh, – Earth Day 2018. Uh, don't forget the National Wildlife Federation, a great organization, certainly worthy of your attention and support at nwf.org. Colin O'Mara, good to talk with you. Thanks Always for coming a pleasure, in. Bill. Thank you.